Hi everyone, I'm Grace. And I'm Max. Welcome to Curiously Enough. This is a space to shine a light on the shadows we hide in. This is a conversation to relieve the heaviness of silenced topics. Here's to getting honest and getting real, feeling inspired and less alone. Thank you for joining us on this road to rediscovering the truth of who we are. Please subscribe and share. We're grateful for your support. Enjoy this week's episode of Curiously Enough. We are thrilled to have Kim Porter on Curiously Enough today. Since 2014, Kim Porter has served as the executive director of Be a Part of the Conversation. Be a Part of the Conversation addresses substance use, misuse, and addiction and its impact on individuals and their families by building a culture of awareness and support. They hold events at community centers, schools, or public venues where speakers, professionals, and people in recovery share on prevention and early intervention understanding substance use and addiction, and supporting recovery. Kim and her fellow board members want individuals to be supported and assisted by a community that is educated and able to take timely and positive action toward healing and lifelong recovery. Kim is a certified family recovery specialist. With this certification, she shares her lived experience with addiction with other families to provide recovery support services. Kim is on the Regional Advisory Board and National Alumni Leadership Council for Care and Treatment Center, where she has been a recipient of several community and volunteer awards. She is also on the advisory board for the Bridgeway School, which is Pennsylvania's only recovery high school. In addition, she's been a part of overdose task forces as well as prevention committees. If you'd like to know more about Kim and the work she is doing with Be a Part of the Conversation, please make sure to visit conversation.zone or send Kim an email at kim at conversation.zone. Welcome, Kim. We're so happy to have you today. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be with you. (laughs) Well, to begin, why don't you set the stage of what your backstory is before you started what is now Be a Part of the Conversation? Sure. Uh, So I was um, working as a marketing coordinator. I've been a graphic designer for my entire adult life. And so I was working with an education foundation affiliated with the Hapro Horsham School District. My office was in the administration building of that school district. Even though I didn't work for the district, I would receive staff emails and they sent something out saying we want to recreate our old drug and alcohol task force. And they came up with this name, be a part of the conversation. At that time, my son, who I'm, we can back up and talk more about, my son was one year into his recovery, and that was in 2011. And so the timing was right for me to help with that. But prior to that, I really didn't have a whole lot of understanding about substance use disorders. But I will say I have another family member who today is in recovery, um, my, my stepfather. He struggled when I was in my early 20s. I was attending um, adult children of alcoholics meetings, trying to understand my codependency with my mother, worrying about her, living with someone in active alcoholism. And um, I'm really grateful that he's found many, many, many years of recovery, um, thankfully, but really just understood this from a whole different perspective when it's your child, mm-hmm. it just changes everything. So when this came along, I said, oh, I'll help you with the logo. I'll help you to market this. And um, once I once I put my toe in the water of this world, I just really became fascinated with it, and it kind of went from there. 
Mm, I love that. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I'm really happy to hear that like some of your family members have found recovery and, and that it's been a great path. I mean, it, I always like to kind of expand on that. You know, there are a lot of people out there that may not ever see recovery. And so when I hear of somebody that has found it, that's something to celebrate. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that a few of your family members have found that. But I did want to touch up on something before we get into the whole be a part of the conversation and that whole process. Mm-hmm. You kind of were talking about how some of your family members had experienced addiction and how that may have affected you. And it brings up mm-hmm. this idea that addiction is a family disease. And mm. I kind of have this feeling in, in my gut that a lot of people out there don't see it that way. They see it as right. the addict or the alcoholic is clearly the one who is using and causing chaos and destruction. But when we kind of take a step back, we see that addiction plays a role in the whole family, whether it's you're the one who's using or, or not. So I'd really love to hear maybe your experience and, and how you see addiction being a family disease. Uh, I love this topic actually. And, and thanks for bringing it up because and not only do I have my own lived experience, but having attended various support group meetings um, specifically with other parents for the last nine years, I, I hear these stories over and over again. And I think it's so easy for us to lose sight of this as family members that we are as sick as, if not sicker than our loved one. And what I love to talk about is how we're so focused on the person with the substance use disorder. We're, we're like wondering where's their bottom. Didn't they, didn't that arrest do it? Didn't that overdose do it? You know, now they're, they got to be ready. Right. And we get so focused on that. And we lose sight of the fact that maybe we've hit a bottom. Maybe we have as family members said, I can't live like this anymore. I can't, you know, jump every time I hear a siren. This was one one of the things that resonated for me. I remember when Daniel was in his active addiction, you know, um, and living at home with us. He so he was in the area, and I I was in bed. He wasn't home yet, and it's one thirty in the morning, and I heard a siren. I just that's immediately where my head would go. And those are the things that still trigger me today. And it wasn't until he was in treatment and later living in a recovery environment for many years that I recognized like, oh, I don't have to live like that anymore. Not just because he was sober, but because I I didn't have a front row seat anymore. And when you talk about, you know, a person in recovery, Often you hear stories about like developing this new normal, new normal. Like, so it's now normal for me as if I'm somebody with a substance use disorder to lie, manipulate, you know, do whatever I have to do to maintain my use so that nothing gets in the way of me continuing to use. And so these things that were completely unthinkable for us, you know, before, you know, someone becomes addicted are, are now part of our lives. And, you know, whether it's stealing or, you know, anything we can do, someone can do to see their addiction, to continue to use. But the family members, you know, we have, we get a new normal too. Like we start making a lot of excuses with other family members or with friends, uh, rationalizing this uh, and all the way to the extreme of, you know, I have heard more than once a parent say like, well, I- I'm going to drive my daughter Kensington to get her heroin because the last time she went, we didn't see her for a week, you know, and 
they're not even hearing what they're saying. It's like this is this is a progressive disease for the person that is struggling with the disease, but it's also progressive for the family members. And we completely lose ourselves. Our, our sometimes marriages are in jeopardy. Um, other relationships fall by the wayside or become incredibly volatile because you know we have completely set aside all of our morals, values, priorities, self-care, all of those things get set aside. And quite often we're trying to manage a recovery program for the person with the substance use disorder and taking no care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's really not our place to even do that. It's not something that we should, their recovery is not something we should own. Um, And unfortunately we get so enmeshed with the person who's struggling. As a parent, especially no one wants their child to be in pain. It's the last thing we want. And so, you know, we do things that we're not even realizing that we're actually possibly contributing to their journey into addiction, you know. So um, I think that that is where we absolutely, our brain gets hijacked with the person with SUD, you know. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and I think Mm -hmm. it's, it's a topic that has come up before on this podcast, but it's important to hear everyone's view on it. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I love what you said specifically, kind of the trend even we're seeing on this journey we're on is that um, as a parent, uh, I, which we are not parents, but uh, <laughs> the, the theme is, can you take care of yourself? And I think that goes right. for any relationship and, and, or just in general. I mean, taking care, putting on your, um, you know, on the flight, whatever, like the oxygen mask before the person next to you, it's right. that thing. And that applies all around. And yet with addiction, we get so focused on the addict or the alcoholic or the person with a disorder or an illness. And um, yeah, it's just important to talk about. And so thank you for giving your input. And it makes me curious about, you know, Max and I have been to some of your events, but for people that haven't, as you bring in this awareness to schools and community events and what have you, how do you then talk with parents that have no knowledge of addiction or no knowledge about self-care or support groups? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I, I, this is a very general question. So, you know, you can kind of do whatever you want with it, but it's just so fascinating to me that you have such knowledge and experience and now you're talking in front of people that have none. And so I don't know what goes through Mm -hmm. your head. How does that, you know, minus the slides that you show in the presentation, like what do you, what do you mentally bring in? Mm -hmm. Thanks. So it it really depends a lot on who the audience is really just helping them to understand genetics, that this is something that can be, you know, passed down through generations, um, understanding those risk factors, but really in very general terms, just explaining it as a brain disease is really essential. And, you know, I don't always do this in my presentation, but especially if I'm having a one-on-one conversation with someone and I try to listen first more than talk. And that is to, to determine like, where are they in this? You know, are they someone who hasn't been impacted personally? And then maybe I'm hearing a little judgment about like, oh, well, and then this is something almost word for word that I heard from someone once who I was at a table at an event and, you know, with our materials. And he was like, well, how did you get involved in all this? And I told him about my son and he said, oh, well, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not judging you or anything, but <laughs> well, I'm about to judge you now. He said, um, but, but, you know, in our family, we talk openly and we, you know, we have conversations about, you know, the kids know that they can talk to us about anything that, that they've tried or thinking of trying. And, you know, I just kind of smiled and said, you know, you may never believe me, but we used to have those conversations too, you know, and, and so I'd try to explain to that person in a very different way than I would somebody who's got someone who is mired in this and their head is spinning and they just don't know where to turn and they're consumed with fear. So we have very different conversations. The person who doesn't understand this even a little bit, I'll say like, well, it's kind of like saying, you know, to someone who has an allergy to shellfish. Um, well, what's wrong with you? Why are you breaking it out in rash? I can eat shrimp and I don't get a rash. You know, so even the big book talks about, you know, thinking of this as an allergic reaction. So that's the way that I kind of very rudimentarily sort of talk about how this might work. Like people have a reaction. That's also a way to talk to a young child about why one family member acts kind of funny when she drinks too much, you know, she has a reaction to alcohol that she, she, her brain says, give me more, give me more. There are so many ways you can talk about this for the family member who's in the soup, as I like to call it, you know, like really, really in the whirlwind of fear and everything else that that we go through as, as family members, you know, I like to say like, you know, take a step back, take a breath. Like you said, Grace, put the oxygen mask on yourself first. Understand that you didn't cause this because so many parents in particular really feel like I must have done something wrong or missed something or didn't send the right message or whatever it was. And so helping them to understand their role and how they can support the person in a healthy way. I think just that brain disease model is, is a tough one for some people to get their heads around. You know, I love what one of our speakers said years ago. He said, you know, addiction is not about drugs. It's about the brain. And that is just so true. We can become addicted to so many behaviors or process addictions or behavioral addictions, right? Like gambling and shopping and sex and relationships and, and so on. I always say to somebody like, there are no chemical components in a deck of cards. And yet someone can lose their livelihood, their family, their home. They have all these repercussions because they can't stop gambling. So this is not just about substances. It's about the brain. However, if you happen to have picked up a substance, particularly when you're young and whether you have a history of, you know, this genetic component with addiction or alcoholism in the family, if you have had trauma, if you have depression or anxiety or ADHD and you pick up a substance, that's going to work a whole lot quicker than shopping or gambling or some of these other things. And that's why there's so much more, of course, that we hear about with the very negative consequences, not to mention the fact that it's, we're often talking about illicit substances, not always legal. If you're underage, even alcohol is an illicit substance. So that's just a much quicker fix for whatever it is that's not working in your life than any of those other kinds of things we need to learn how to use in moderation, like food and technology and all those sorts of things. I think it really does boil down to that. It's not about drugs. It's about the brain. Mm. And I appreciate you kind of going a little bit more in depth with the whole addiction piece because it is complex and there are a lot of avenues that, that play a big part. The society that we live in, you know, addiction's kind of just being thrown around and 
there's just a lot of misinformation out there. And yeah, and there was even I spoke with someone recently, and I was reminded, uh, I, like I knew this, but I had to hear it again to be like, oh my gosh, that's right. That that was like one of the first things I heard when I found support in a twelve step, you know, community. That alcohol is um, the symptom; it's not the problem. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of goes back right. to what you're saying. We're we have to be looking deeper. We have to be looking at the human and that human's experience, and that person and their identity and their personality and their story, because the the substances or the process addictions are just like that's that's covering up the rest. And so even by right. what you're doing, you're bringing that to the table and saying, hey if this is the symptom, then what's the problem? That's what we need to be talking about. Mm. Um, as well right. as like what those symptoms, quote unquote, symptoms look like. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I applaud you for kind of taking the route of having a conversation. I mean, that's like, <laughs> for me and, and my mm-hmm. family, that was the biggest barrier. I mean, we didn't really know mm-hmm. how to speak up about difficult topics. I mean, once in a while, we'd bring it to the table. But I'd like to ask you, you know, what does having a conversation look like? Is there a certain language or messaging that plays a role in having an effective conversation? Right. We want everyone to be a part of the conversation. If we could do that, think of how much we could reduce stigma. And, you know, just last night we were in Montgomeryville talking, we had our um, Shining a Light on the Opioid Crisis program, and there was... A gentleman in recovery and he brought another friend of his who's also in recovery and and um, we were having this chat beforehand and one of the guys said you know this is all through my family no one ever talked about it this was taboo we all knew it we just didn't talk about it and of course that just did nothing but fan the flames of stigma it must be really really bad if we're not going to talk about it you know if we can't even discuss this as a family I loved what um, just recently the support group meeting, a, a woman who chaired brought this little, it was like a meme and it had um, a broken eggshell and it said, if you're walking on eggshells, ask yourself when you became a chicken, you know, and <laughs> really good, like, that. you know, and, and, you know, just for example, we did an intervention with our son because we knew things weren't good, but we had that disease of denial. We, because this is something that happens a lot for parents and we really weren't able to see it for what it was. We had a lot of excuses. We were making excuses about this, that, and other thing happened in his life. And that's why he's just not himself and kind of a failure to launch, but he'll get it together, you know. And when we had this kind of cold slap of reality, when two of his dear friends outed him to us, when they recognized how much drug use was going on, we did this intervention Thankfully, he went to treatment and he's been sober ever since, which is amazing. But the next day, the day after the intervention, I asked my four closest girlfriends to come over. They didn't know what it was about. They were terrified because why was I calling them for this meeting? You know, they came into my house and sat down and I said, "Um, so as of yesterday, Daniel's in an inpatient drug treatment program. And they all said, thank God. They all knew. Mm -hmm. They absolutely knew. I thought I was going to shock the heck out of them. They told me later they were thankful that I didn't say he was in the hospital or jail, you know, because they thought that's what was coming. They all knew. But of course, none of us were talking about it. And they're my best friends in the world. But they couldn't say to me, you know, and I didn't expect them to. Even looking back, I didn't, wouldn't expect them to say, don't you realize 
not himself. He's got a problem, you know, and they've been incredibly supportive. I'm so lucky. I have other folks I know through this work that have lost friendships, have had people see them in the grocery store and flip the cart around and go the other way. I mean, those are real stories. You know, I'm so grateful that that's not what happened in my case. My friends have been amazing, but, but even with all that closeness and support, we couldn't talk about it until everybody was in the right place and the right time to do it, you know, and I think how much we could have circumvented possibly if we had talked about it more openly, if I had had less denial. Of course, the denial comes from the negative connotations associated with addiction. And by the way, this is a huge barrier for getting treatment and getting the right kind of treatment. You know, we took our son to a mood and anxiety disorder specialist when we knew that he was, you know, smoking a lot of marijuana. And, you know, she she had no understanding of addiction. You know, she didn't understand. And he, he said all the right things. And, oh, yes, you can talk with my parents and all that kind of stuff. And, well, of course, he wasn't going to be completely honest with her because he wanted to keep using. So she was completely bamboozled and told us we were overreacting. And, and we took him to the wrong person. And that's one of the things I try to share when I'm talking with parents who have, especially like teenagers, they're seeing a lot of behaviors that are worrying them. They're, they're isolating. Their friends have changed. They don't have friends. They're physically, they're changing the sleep patterns. Like, you know, can you honestly expect yourselves to figure this out? If your child had any other symptoms of any other, you know, God forbid, some lump on their body or some, you know, some other medical condition you wouldn't just isolate, try to figure it out for yourself. And like, well, maybe we'll just feed them something different and that'll help. You know, I mean, no, you would find someone who understands the worst case scenario and rule out the worst possibilities. Why wouldn't we do that? Why didn't we do that? Um, and find somebody who understood addiction because we don't want to believe it, you know? So I think that it's such a barrier to, to people getting help. We should not be homeschooling this. Anytime we're with someone that's offering a solution of having a conversation or talking about it, we're reminded. And I think that's what you are doing with be a part of the conversation. It's a reminder that, Hey, you can have a conversation with your kid. It can look like this. You don't have to be too concerned. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to have all the right words, but it's being open, willing and listening. And I think Mm -hmm. also something that you were talking about with the whole denial piece and the many forms that it takes something that, struck me when I started to attend your events and learn more about what you were doing was, and I'd like you to expand on this, so I won't say all of it, but how you give the forms to the school and how a lot of the, before you attend there and hold the event and how a lot of, um, I don't know if it's the school or parents, and I'll let you kind of, again, expand on this, but how they say, well, it's not here. Addiction's not here. Right, right. So yeah, I wanted to hear you. That was pretty astonishing to me. Yeah. So when you're, I think you're referring to those fifth graders questions. Yes. Is that what you're talking about? Yep. So when we do our program, have you had the conversation? We ask whoever our liaison is in, in that school district. And that again, is a program that we do for parents whose kids are mostly in elementary level uh, grades. And so in advance of that, we ask our liaison to reach out to fifth grade staff, you know, teachers, and, and ask them to pass up 
index cards to their students and instruct the kids, you know, to not put their name on it, but write down any question they have about drugs or alcohol. And so then the, the teacher collects them, types them up, sends them to us. We print them out on blue paper. We put them on everybody's chair. So when we have an event, we'll, we can say those blue papers have questions from your fifth graders. And um, they're always astounding, always. Every time we do this, the educators who are collecting them, the parents who are reading them, the other staff members who are reading them are always really shocked because we all have this idea that in fifth grade just happens to be what we targeted because it seems it's kind of like toward the end of elementary school leading into middle school. So, you know, hopefully they haven't been corrupted by the middle school kids yet or whatever, you know, so they still have that innocence. And yet they're asking questions about heroin. They're asking really great questions about the word, you know, even the word drugs, like they'll say, like, how do I know, how do we know our pharmacist isn't a drug dealer? Well, the word drugs is, can be confusing. You know, is Advil a drug? Is heroin a drug? What's the difference? Well, obviously there's a tremendous difference, but you know, what a, a drug dealer and a pharmacist to a child don't really seem all that different perhaps. So there's a lot of confusion. There's also a lot of misinformation out there. And they ask great questions about what do I do? When my friends, you know, will, will, will my friends like punch me if I don't try the drug? I mean, they hear about peer pressure and it scares them. Like, what does peer pressure even look like? And so we use those questions that kids come up with to talk with parents about, you know, how would you have a conversation with your fifth grader or your fourth grader or sixth, whatever, you know, about some of these things. And if you don't have the answers, by all means, say, I don't have the answer to that. Let's see if we can find out. But to encourage that, you know, I think that that as parents, we're always, and I'm certainly, this was certainly my MO, we feel like we've got to come up with these magical things that we're going to say to our kids that's going to keep them on the straight and narrow or, or scare them enough that they don't do, you know, A or B. But we're doing all the talking. And why aren't we asking them more questions? Because when you just give, do this simple exercise of what questions do you have about drugs or alcohol, well, look what we come up with. So just listening to children and, and hearing like, you know, hearing from our kids, what did you think about that movie we saw with the person that was getting high or, or something like that? Why do you think people get high? That's a great question to ask a child and just talk about it. And And then when we hear the answer, like if they say something like, well, I think it looks like a lot of fun and I might want to try it. Well, then, of course, that's when the fear grips us and we go right into lecturing again. Well, mm. you know, let's calm down. <laughs> and if we shut that down, how likely are they going to be to tell us an honest feeling in the future? You know, so we want to keep those conversations going and then coming up with a really clear plan as parents, whether you're, you know, living together or not, being on the same page for the sake of your children, you know, coming up with a plan for here's what's acceptable in our family, here's what's not, here are the consequences if this thing or that thing happens, you know, but we really want you to tell us about it. And I think also what's so important for parents to understand, even a very young children, is so many times they'll say like, when they come to that K through five program, they'll say like, oh, I, I really thought this was like preparing us for when things get rough in middle school and high school years. And it's not like there's a lot we can be doing now. And it's doing something as simple as watching our language when we talk about somebody. If there's some celebrity 
and we're saying like, oh, what a train wreck or something like that. They hear that, you know, and instead like, wow, I sure hope that they can get some help. I hope that they have support from their family because they seem to really be struggling. That's going to pave the way for a much more productive conversation down the road. If the child has someone, a friend or the parents of a friend or another family member or an older sibling, you know, that is clearly having problems. It's not going to be taboo. It's not going to be those eggshells. It's going to be like, oh, this is somebody who's really struggling instead of another train wreck or what could happen into that, you know. So by being mindful of our language really early on, you know, that can lay the foundation for some really good stuff later, I think. Absolutely. And I love the fact of like this difference between asking questions and lecturing. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. And depending on what way you go with it, it really kind of determines the language and the messaging and just the overall conversation. Mm -hmm. So inviting it to me, it sounds like kind of taking a curious approach rather than like, let's sit down we have to talk about, you know, and this and that, Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of opens up this idea of it's not intimidating and scary and bad to talk about. It's more of just like, this is this is curious like let's let's talk about this yeah and and especially right. with the surveys that means that <laughs> kids are wondering they are curious they want to know right and right. by not talking about it we're letting them do their own research and that's not to say that we're supposed to say drugs are always bad like there are certain drugs that the pharmacist gives that are not illegal and they're used for you know treating illnesses or whatever like Mm-hmm. That's that's a big question. That if a kid's gonna try to figure it out on their own, they're more likely to not only like that's a risk behavior, but also not talk about it. And they're gonna silence it because well, I didn't know, and I tried it, and this is how it turned out, and now I'm scared, and so this is how I'm gonna go. This is like the journey I'm gonna take now, which kind of like goes with prevention, right? Which, and and you know we've right. had Kim and I and Grace, we've all had this conversation about prevention and. That's obviously a term that's used very commonly in in addiction and mental health and whatnot. (laughs) And I wanted to just hear your take and and have the listeners hear your take on what prevention means to you. Mm -hmm. So especially early on, I really struggled with that word because I feel like, oh, how much can we really do to prevent a young person from doing pretty much anything? I really like to focus on delaying the onset of use. You know, so prevention is just an important thing to focus on to, it's a goal, you know, it's, and there, there are things that we can do to understand childhood resiliency, different influencing factors that might put someone at risk for a substance use disorder, like that can be preventative. But I think all of these things are, again, it's almost more like laying that, laying a healthier foundation, you know, understanding the value of communication, understanding resiliency. To, you know, prevention, I think sometimes parents feel like they, they need to use some scare tactics or they're, they're always saying like, you know, well, why don't they do the D.A.R.E. program anymore? Well, <laughs> you know, it was, these, these were, you know, admirable efforts, but they just did not prove to be very effective, especially when you have kids being told that drugs are bad, drugs are bad, like you said, Grace, you know, and, and the thing is, when they hear that and then they try something like you know, smoke their first joint or they try to try a little bit of vodka or beer or whatever, and they actually love it, then all those messages are completely invalid now. You know, all those messages about how bad drugs are, you know, drugs can be incredibly helpful. They can also be 
you know, used inappropriately and can cause a lot of life problems. So taking those opportunities, again, I think this, if we're talking about prevention, it's having a conversation really young about any medicine. So if your child has, you know, strep throat and they're prescribed an antibiotic or if they're taking, uh, or if they have a cough and they're taking Delsum, especially something like Delsum or Robitussin or anything that has dextromethorphan in it, having a, a, not just a conversation, I mean, sit down, put, turn off the phones, eye to eye, you know, saying like, okay, it's really important that you hear me loud and clear on this. You only take as much as is prescribed or recommended and you stop when the symptoms are gone or when the, the prescriber tells you to stop. You might like this, but you cannot take more than is prescribed, you know, and that's a really important, even, you know, you're not going to get addicted to amoxicillin, but it's still an opportunity to have a conversation about medications in general, because right. what I hear from clinicians is a patient or client who has ADHD for a, a diagnosis of ADHD and they're given Adderall or Vyvanse or something like that, they'll say like, well, but I need it. Yes, I'm snorting it three times a day, but it's, but it's something I need because I have this ADHD and it helps me. And they need to get that message really early on. Like, okay, yes, that can help a certain population, but if you know, it's also highly addictive. And so is dextromethorphan can be abused, can be mixed with alcohol and create real serious dissociative effects that some people really love. So if we demonize drugs, that's not good. If we say that they're going to be the answer to everything, that's not so good either. I think we just had this conversation last night actually about, because we were focusing on opioids, you know, we kind of were also going down the road of, well, let's just take a look at the history of our country. You know, the culture here is I need to focus better. I need to sleep better. I need to not have this pain. So here's a benzodiazepine. Here's an amphetamine. Here's an opioid. You know, we do this more than any other country on the planet. We know that, you know, we really have to think about culturally when we're talking again about prevention, like go spin it way back to how do we first think about substances to begin with? And is it just the easiest way to deal with things? You know, is it easier than diet and exercise? Is it easier than meditation? Is it easier than, you know, a lot of other things that take some effort? I think that's something that we can model, you know, for our children. Mm. I think, and again, with regard to prevention or the delay of onset of use or however you're going to look at it. I loved what I learned from Caroline Fankel, her example of saying to a, a young person or really anybody, you know, boy, I'm feeling really, really exhausted. I think I'm just going to take a nap for a while so I'll feel better. Or I've had such a stressful day. Do you want to go out and take a walk with me? I feel like that would help me. And then I think too, with technology, especially with kids being so tied to their dollar advice, whatever, you know, just to say as a parent or an adult to say, you know, gosh, I am so sick of looking at screens. I think I want to like, do you want to play cards with me or, or go for a walk again or something like that? You know, just to, just to model that self-care and understanding that can be preventative too, creating a different dynamic for how to self-soothe. Mm. Yes. Agreed. And I, I, I love that part of like, like changing our language. And when you were talking it, uh, it reminded me, you know, when we say 
and you mentioned this, like drugs are bad, like how, how valid is that when we're looking at the scope of what mm-hmm. a drug is, there's a variety of meaning, but also what came up for me was like, so if I do drugs, I'm bad, which I think is a lot mm-hmm. of what is mm-hmm. carried on in kids. And then as they become young adults and whether or not, if we got a group of, you know, 17 to 21 year olds and said, do you think that you're bad for doing this? They'd probably say no, but I'm sure if we got them in some deep counseling, you'd find a Mm -hmm. false belief that they are somehow not good enough. And whether or not that's part of drug and alcohol use, it's just important that this is the language that we're using around addiction, drugs and alcohol. People that are uninformed are saying like, well, you're bad if you do that. You know, you're, you're stupid if you, if you get blackout drunk, like you're an idiot if you drive while you're high. Well, maybe that's your opinion, but for them, that's their reality and they're not mm-hmm. stupid or an idiot or bad. It's what they're dealing with and what they know right. to be true. And, and so just simple things like that, because I know for me, I was using that language about myself after I got sober. It's like, well, I'm just right. stupid for da-da-da or like, why would I ever da-da-da-da-da? And it's like, we change the language, mm-hmm. we change the message, we change the belief, we change the person. Mm-hmm. Another thing I'm curious about from your perspective, what do you think when we are speaking now about parents in your events or or teachers or people in the community, what do you think regarding, it could be regarding like having the conversation or language like we're talking about now or something else. What do you think are the biggest takeaways that that they have from your event or the the biggest pieces of advice or guidance they walk away with? Mm -hmm. Well, I think for, for one, especially for those parents of younger kids, they do, I have heard them say at the end of these events, you know, like, wow, I didn't realize there's so much I could be doing now. I really Mm -hmm. thought I had to wait for things to get bad to start intervening. Well, you know, why, why wouldn't we develop our, you know, build our toolbox before the crisis, you know, when, and I often use the the metaphor of, you know, when there's a huge snowstorm, everybody runs to Home Depot and buys shovels. Wouldn't it be better if you had the shovel before the snowstorm came? Wouldn't it be better, you know, before the power goes out, they have a generator if that's where you live and yeah, that's what you need, you know, rather than, you know, everybody scrambling to get their tools together when there's a crisis. So the same goes for raising a child. If we think it's not my kid, well, maybe great. Glad it's not your kid today. Maybe, you know, something might come up down the road that you might need to address this, or they might have a friend that's going through it, or, you know, none of us set out to raise a child to become addicted to substances, you know, none of us has. And so there's so much, you know, I had a very cavalier attitude about all this stuff before I learned anything. I just had, I had an opinion. I didn't have information. I I personally never cared for marijuana, but I didn't think it was that big a deal, which I hear parents say all the time. So I have zero judgment about anybody that views it that way because that's exactly how I was. Well, I understand a whole lot more about it now. And I know that for some people, like like my son, it is, you know, it's going to, it's just not going to go well. Mm. It's really not, you know? And so what I wish I knew then that I know now, you know, could fill a stadium, you know? So anything we can do to educate people ahead of time. And I think, Grace, you're saying something that made me think about progression. You know, I think that that's something that I would love for people to have a better understanding of too. This is a progressive disease. It's chronic and it's progressive. And it also kind of gets back to that new normal thing, you know? So what, what we see as normal teenage 
stuff or even for an adult. You know, alcohol is, it's almost like the alcoholic to me has become a little bit disenfranchised in our community because, you know, we focus so much, rightly so, on the opioid crisis because we are losing people to that substance due to overdose. However, how many people die every year from alcoholism and related illnesses? The same with nicotine. You know, there are other substances out there that can absolutely derail a life, ruin a family that don't have the immediate fatalities that opioids present. And so I think even for the adult who, you know, maybe all through college, did a little partying, it was just fine. And, you know, one adult goes in one direction and like kind of cuts back and gets more, I don't want to say control, but they, you know, learn to manage their drinking and, and it right. doesn't become a problem for them. And yet for another person, it, it may escalate. It may really escalate when life challenges come along, when a crisis happens, you lose your job, the marriage falls apart, the, some, you know, somebody has a diagnosis and whatever. There are a lot of reasons that people can progress into alcoholism in a very cunning and baffling way, you know, that mm. that isn't always obvious to people. So I think progression is something I would love to see people I hope that they learn a bit about that in our programs, that this may not be something that looks like a problem today. And it also speaks to so many people ask this question, how do these you know, family members not know that their loved one was addicted to heroin, was using heroin? How do they not know? Well, because when they started using heroin, they might have felt, or, or whatever opioid they started with, they might have felt right for the first time in their lives. I've heard it described over and over again. You know, this felt right. Like, oh my God, this filled this hole in me that I've always had and I never knew what it was and what I needed until this came along. And so there's a period of time that it may be looking really good, you know, and it's not until there's more of a tolerance and a higher dose and the dependency and the consequences and then progress, progress, progress. And then now it's completely obvious, but we missed it when it was progressing as mm. loved ones a lot of time. I hope that's something that is gleaned from this. And by using, by having people with us like you two, like other people, and you guys have seen some of our participants share their story, to have people right in front of these groups say, I was addicted to heroin. I was addicted to alcohol. This is what I did in my addiction. You know, you guys heard from John Becker, who shares this story about being a detective who ended up having to tell his son, your hero cop is going to jail through his addiction. And I'm not sharing anything that he hasn't already shared publicly dozens or hundreds of times. That, in my mind, does so much to break down the stigma of addiction. So that when people come to our program and they may have a picture in their mind of what a heroin addict looks like, we all see the, the disturbing pictures of people, <clears throat> you know, in Needle Park and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's the image and that's reality. But it also, we need to understand that that's not that person. That person has been consumed with, with a substance use disorder. Get to know that person once they're on the other side of this and you'll, you'll be able to hear it and understand it and see where this can take someone in, in a real humanizing way, not just data, not just numbers and stories, but actual people that are in front of you telling their, their truth, which is amazing. Mm. Yes. I, before I move on with anything, I, I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing. And it's so very much needed 
And for somebody like myself and Grace, who've been a part of recovery and, you know, just been a part of the recovery community and have studied addiction and, you know, we've been very much exposed to this whole new world. We've attended your events and they've been very informative, very educational, and we've always walked away with something that we learned. And that's something that, you know, completely opened our eyes. So I want to say for any listeners who maybe live in Chester County, Delaware County, Montgomery County, greater Philadelphia area, please do yourself a favor, check out, be a part of the conversation. They're always having events within the community. It's just totally shedding a light on addiction and and mental health. And um, so I just want to thank you for that. Just moving forward, and this is typically the way that we end our interviews here, is that we always like to ask the person that we're talking to, what does the world need more of? Hmm. Well, first of all, thank you, Max, for saying that. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you guys showing up and being there for us. And we'll say, hey, can you jump in and facilitate a group <laughs> for us? And, and um, yeah, so so thank you for saying that. And I, I would love to see more people show up and be with us. And mm-hmm. we're grateful for anybody who walks in the room. So thank you. Okay. Yes. What does the world need more of? That's a really big question. Empathy. Mm empathy. Just because someone hasn't had a front row seat for this with a loved one, I would love it if they would still be open to understanding it. You know, it's unfortunately so many of the people who really, you know, you shouldn't have to live with someone who's in the throes of addiction to understand it. And I know that the stigma has so much to do with the judgment and all this stuff that comes with it. And I think a lot of that's based in fear, not my kid, not my person, not my life, not my family, you know, but the, the people in my life who were in my life before this became real for us are still in my life. And I'm so grateful for that. So I was very lucky that I was surrounded with people who have empathy. I think about all the people I have met in the last nine years. God, I can't, I mean, just their faces and their stories just run through my head constantly and the pain that they've been in because people judge them, shame them, get it together. Oh my God, when are you going to get this? When are you, you know, I mean, it just can't do anything right. When are you going to kick them out? Why, how could you kick them out? You know, like nothing's right. <laughs> and why do you have to live it to understand it? That's if only people would show up to learn about this just because they want to learn about it, not because they're living with it. That would be an amazing thing. That was a really long answer. I'm sorry. No, we, <laughs> we, good. we agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Kim, for, for being here and sharing your story and giving the world a taste of what be a part of the conversation is and how it can happen in your home and in your community, the importance of it, the importance of talking about what is so often stigmatized and, and bringing your light and shedding your light on these topics. Yeah, we can't thank you enough for sharing your experience and your expertise. Just, it was really helpful and, and just uh, really grateful for you. So thank you. Uh-huh. Thank you guys so much. And I'm grateful to know both of you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Kim. Kim.